Greetings and welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast from Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church located in Music City, Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast deals with the intricacies of planning worship each week. I'm Diana Sanchez-Bouchong, Executive Director of Worship Ministries and Director of Music Ministries. I'm Lisa Hancock, Director of Worship Arts. And I'm Derek Weber, Director of Preaching Ministries. During this time of transition from virtual to online and hybrid worship, the worship team has endeavored to provide conversations that inspire worship teams and leaders to seize this moment and realize the opportunities before the church, finding ways to help those worshiping with us to re-engage and shape the church we are becoming. Today we are delighted to welcome the Reverend Joe Stobaugh, Joe is a senior pastor of the historic University Park United Methodist Church in Dallas, Texas, a position he held since July of 2020, so one of those pandemic moves. (laughs) Prior to serving in this capacity, Reverend Stobaugh served as the pastor of modern worship at Grace Avenue United Methodist Church in Frisco, Texas, in addition to serving as the executive minister of worship and arts. Reverend Stobaugh is an ordained deacon in the North Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church and has served the conference in many ways, from worship design and leadership to committee work and serving as a member of the 2016 and 2019 delegations to general and jurisdictional conferences from the North Texas Annual Conference. Joe is an in-demand clinician, teacher, speaker, musician, and preacher. He has spoken at numerous national conventions and has served as worship designer, song enlivener, conductor, preacher, worship leader, and consultant in many contexts, including preaching at the United Methodist Student Movement's National Forum, an event whose previous preachers include the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., among others. Joe's sermon, Melody and Countermelody, was featured as a distinguished sermon on the One Campaign's website in 2007 founded by Bono of U2. So welcome, Joe. Tell us how you're doing and what's going on in your life and ministry. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's just such a privilege to be with you and a big fan of each one of you and your ministry. And I'm really grateful to be here and just want to start by saying thank you for all that you're doing for the United Methodist Church. I'm a frequent visitor to the Discipleship (laughs) Ministries webpage and often represent to colleagues, like, holy, the worship stuff, it's all you need. It's like right there. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and the the way you are empowering ministry in the United Methodist Church. It's a wonderful and marvelous thing. Uh, Yeah. I'm doing okay. About six months ago, I kind of had a, a bomb go off in my life, uh, and I was diagnosed with stage 3C colon cancer. Uh, and so I had a big seven-hour surgery in December, and like I'm got my chemo pack on today. I'm through round 10 of 12 of chemotherapy, and hopefully that'll be all done. But I've been just so thankful to God for an amazing support system with my wife and our kids and family and friends and a supportive church and just feel beyond blessed to have those things uh, in my life. And I will say the last six months has really deepened some things in my leadership and in my ministry, and I think especially in my preaching. Right after we got the diagnosis, my wife Sarah and I prayed a lot about how much of this journey do we want to share with other people? And over the course of of that time in prayer together, we kept coming back into my heart were words from a mentor and hero of mine named the Reverend Kathleen Baskin Ball, fought cancer valiantly and had an, a vibrant, active ministry till the 
up until the day that she died. And I was talking with her about this near the end of her life. She said, you know, if people don't know, they can't pray for you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, and I uh, had been working on a DMIN project uh, that I'd started the, the research in that project about vulnerability <laughs> as one of the key tools for spiritual growth uh, wow. that can open up a congregation to be able to begin to live with a, a spirit of Ubuntu about six mm-hmm. months prior to that. So it was one of those moments of like, all right, preacher, you know, put your, your <laughs> metaphorical <laughs> yeah. money where your mouth is or yeah. not, you know. But uh, that focus on a, appropriate vulnerability is really deepened my leadership. I've learned to trust people more and how to actually delegate. (laughs) uh, uh, As an Enneagram 3, it's really helped to remove some of the masks that I just sort of instinctually put on when I preach. And I think being so tired from chemo has uh, uh, inadvertently helped that. (laughs) Just don't have the energy to, quote, perform in the same way. And just to be real with the congregation, it's been been a real blessing. But all that is to say, if I kind of stumble for words, it's because the chemo brain is like a real thing. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's some of us don't have that. <laughs> we can't don't have that out <laughs> to say that. I just want to say how uh, I don't even have the words, but your positive spirit in all of this, mm-hmm. and I've been following from from the time you announced it to everyone, has been such a blessing to me, and just. I'm praying for you has been a blessing and, and seeing how you and Sarah deal with this and the kids. So I just, I wanted just to say that is thank you for sharing with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That means so much. And I, uh, I should have said this earlier, the power of experiencing being prayed over by so many people is mm-hmm. just, there are no words for what it means. And I mean, obviously as a, pastor and follower of Jesus, I think prayer is efficacious and have experienced that in a really profound way. Mm-hmm. And I would say I've even experienced, you know, you write all these papers to go through the candidacy process about grace and what it means. And but I've experienced at a personal level, a depth of grace that I never really thought was like for me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thank you for your prayers. They mean, they mean the world to me. And even in the midst of that, life at University Park UMC keeps going on, and I'm, I'm so thankful for them and the way they've picked things up and to, to be able to serve a church that's excited about its future, that's continuing to drill down and discern the difference that God is calling us to make in our communities and the, the kind of community that God's calling us to become is a real privilege, and, and truly, it's a privilege to serve in a church that's really excited about being in the United Methodist Church mm-hmm. and the future that God has for us is yes. such a yes. blessing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just a joy. It's just a joy most of the time. <laughs> well, let's be honest. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some days it's like, well, you know. Yeah. But even in the midst of that, God's presence is just uh, so profound. Well, there's so, uh, so many things out of all of this that we could spend profitable time talking about. But, but we really brought you in for a specific <laughs> question that we had on our minds. It's something that has struck me in particular. I'm just so you know, I'm the non-musician in the group. I, I do preaching, and, and I'm surrounded by all these musicians. But I had this question, this idea about proclamation and music, particularly instrumental music. When we think about proclamation, we tend to think about the words that we say, whether it's in preaching, whether it's an anthem that is sung, or a hymn that we, we present. We always tend to think in words. Mm. 
But what is the proclamation of instrumental music? That's that's one of the questions that we're exploring here together as a worship team. And, and we brought you in as someone who has feet in both of those camps, the preaching proclamation and the musician camp. And, and, and just what do you think about that idea that says an instrumentalist, whether it be keyboards, whether it be strings, whether it be horns, whatever it might be, is it? Are they making a proclamation, or is it just somehow background? How do you understand a a presentation of instrumental music as proclamation? Yes, I was very thankful to to have the opportunity to reflect on this. I think so much of just for me, it's like doing the thing. Uh, And so having the opportunity to really reflect on it, it was a real gift, because at first it was like, oh, gosh. That's a that's a fantastic question that uh, really deserves some thought. You know, I, I and it was, it was a, a good challenge for me because as someone who has a foot in apparently a variety of things, I don't know why I can't <laughs> focus. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so much of the work for me as someone who is really passionate about congregational song too is how do we really make that create environments where the congregation can find their voice. And so I, I, I think in some sense I really hadn't spent a ton of time thinking about the instrumental side of it. So I was really grateful for that. And, you know, living in Dallas, Texas, there is a lot of expository preaching focus here, (laughs) which is, (laughs) there's certainly a place for that. But as I was reflecting on that more, I was thinking about, you know, Wesley, Wesley's preaching was focuses on Christian transformation and Christian formation. Mm -hmm. That's where that all led to. And so I think in a culture that's just maxed out with words, it can be really difficult to find time or space or a window into mystery, which is where I think the Spirit does some of her best formational work. And so I think for me, my experience has been that instrumental music can serve as an opening of the window for people, for the Holy Spirit to break into people's lives and in a community together in a way that spoken words and sung words just can't accomplish I mean, I know certainly that as a preacher, I've certainly had folks catch me after a sermon and say, you know, when you said X thing, I was really moved by that. And, you know, the general experience is like, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've all had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And you're like, I almost intended to say that, but then I realized like, that's the spirit doing uh, what it, it does. Is, yeah. Yeah. And so, like, that's, gosh, that's a marvelous thing. But I think with instrumental music, when done well, can create an environment in worship for more of that to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm. unmediated avenues for the Spirit to do its work. And so in its own way, it's potentially a venue for proclamation for the Spirit, I think would be one one of the things that I would think. I mean, I see this in worship specifically in moments of like ritual underscoring where all that good stuff is happening at once. And, you know, it's communion or baptismal reaffirmation and there's music that just just creates that sense of mystery and openness or allows creates an environment for people to be open to that. Uh, certainly things like the like a well-timed prelude or postlude can do that. Music that underscores time for prayer. I know as a preacher, one of the things that I really look forward to is, is those moments of music before or after a homily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that just either sets sets the pace where you want it to be, or really can you know bring that message home. So, and then of course I see that a lot in people's personal devotional time. In 2013, I was part of a 
group in the annual conference where they were doing this work in North Texas, where for every five years you'd been ordained, you'd come back in for training and, you know, disc profiles and all that sort of things. But it was actually really marvelous. And one of the things they encouraged you, but didn't require you to do, was to create a project that was mar- that kind of marked that season in ministry for you. And so being a, maybe sometimes a little overly ambitious, I thought, I'm going to do like an, create an album of places uh, on my pilgrimage through faith that were important to me as my growth as a musician. And so I contacted the organist at my home church and learned how to record on the road and did a thing with her and then did a thing at Perkins with a wonderful pianist who's since gone to glory named Charles Winslow. Mm -hmm. It's just marvelous musician. I went out to the first church that all the churches that I've served and recorded something that was germane to that season of ministry. And most of it was, there was two songs that had vocals and everything else was instrumental. I was a saxophonist, uh, was my ins- primary concentration instrument in undergrad. And so it was a lot of, a lot of just solo saxophone or saxophone with other people. And the uh, response I got to it was really interesting. And we used the, the proceeds to uh, go towards Imagine No Malaria. That's when we were in the, mm-hmm. in the middle of that project. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of folks say how they were able to use that music in their devotional time. Uh, as prayers, and mm-hmm. was talking about how she would use it in her creative English cl- writing class uh, when they were writing together. This is a way to kind of create an environment for that. And interestingly, and several folks who said that they were going through chemotherapy and would listen to the listen to that album in the midst of that. And then two or three others who were like, "This is just what I use to like when I need to relax and prepare for sleep." And at first, I was like. Is my music just musical Nyquil? Is that what you? <laughs> <laughs> I need some of that, <laughs> right? Well, then I remembered Psalm four, and that God gives sleep to God's beloved. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's a good thing. So I, I think certainly in people's personal devotional time too, there's opportunities for the um, its own kind of proclamation for the Spirit to meet people where they are in a way that's unmediated by uh, words. Hmm. Well, I, I wonder too. Uh, Paul's famous line, the spirit that intercedes with sighs too deep mm. for words. Mm. And I wonder if some of those sighs could be that musical underpinning that, that helps mm-hmm. us hear, hear that proclamation, hear that presence. Um, I, I wonder sometimes instrumental music, my inclination is what are the words that go with this? But, but sometimes yes. you don't always need that. You just need to flow. You listen to the mm-hmm. language of the music mm-hmm. itself. And, and there's just something powerful about that. And I think what you're pointing at is, is the opening, the possibility that the spirit is present. And it's an experience mm-hmm. of a presence and a yearning and a connection somehow. The other thing music does is it binds people together. You know, when you play it in 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 a community in church or or whatever, everybody's listening together and sharing in that experience, and so we become united somehow by the the strands of the music. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it was the uh, Albus Dumbledore quote: oh, "Music, magic, far more powerful than anything we yeah. do here." <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, and Joe, I'm so struck by what you just shared that. In some ways, we don't even have control in preaching over mm. what people hear. Mm-hmm. But there's really no control over how somebody's going to receive a piece of instrumental music, but what power there is that we're receiving it at the same time together. Mm-hmm. That whatever, whatever we're going through, even, even all of these kind of disparate, seemingly separate 
realities that people engaged your album with, they were all hearing the same thing. They have a touchstone that if they meet, they will share that touchstone whether they know it or not, right? But even when we're together in worship, that I I think a colleague and a professor that we know, well, uh, Dr. Chris Anderson likes to say, listening is not passive, Listening is an active thing. And so I'm so struck by what you've kind of drawn out here about how if if instrumental music proclaims, everybody can receive it their own way and receive it together. <laughs> and that is an active, that the spirit is doing something active, not just in us as individuals, but in the very physical act of receiving that set of beautiful vibrations together. It's, it's quasi-Trinitarian, right? Almost. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All connected and yet receiving the thing and however it's to be received. Yeah. 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 I have to say, as an instrumentalist, you know, as somebody who was an organist and man spent so many, so many hours in a practice room just going over all the skills and the techniques and the artistry Mm. and the repertoire for years and years and years to be able to be a church musician. And, And you have been through that in saxophone, but also with other areas of your your musicality and just the time that you put in. I am always so struck by I don't love the idea that as musicians, we learn skills that we can then apply to non-musical things all of the time. Like, I, I'm often like, it's okay to just be a musician and enjoy <laughs> enjoy the making of the music, right? But at the same time, because that practice and that instilling of the technique gets down into the bones and can be such a holy thing, I'm so struck, and I'd love to hear you reflect on, if you will, with us for a little bit, what is it about being an instrumentalist, kind of having this connection to a thing outside of you that you create art with and that you've dedicated so many years to being with, right, whatever instrument it is, how does that influence who you are as a preacher and in your pastoral ministry at University Park and beyond? That's a great question. I'm actually hoping to do some more some writing about that, like what are the <laughs> gifts that musicians can bring in leadership in a variety of ways. But let me also offer a hearty amen. Like music is worth it just for itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> amen. No qualifier needed. But I, I would definitely agree that it deeply influences uh, both preaching and leadership. The undergraduate, I went to the University of North Texas for my undergraduate degree. And one of the things that I really appreciated as a saxophone is that there was Equal parts. No, that's not. It was really more 60 40. 60 <laughs> being like, you got to know how to read. Mm-hmm. It's like how you get a job with a saxophone is like whatever they need you to do, you can do. Mm-hmm. And so, but then there was also a large emphasis on improvisation. Mm. And so, as I think about improvisation, I, um, I'm working to get into my preaching that same level of comfort that I have with a saxophone or a bass or a guitar or ukulele or something like that to be open enough in the moment to respond and to feel free to get off the manuscript a little bit more and to be able to be really attuned, to be comfortable and to be attuned to what the Spirit's doing in the moment, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, I just haven't put the same amount of hours in yet. (laughs) uh, But it's getting there in bits and pieces. So I think that's a big part of it too. And I think there's also, as an improviser, you have to be comfortable and have a high tolerance for risk mm. and openness because mm-hmm. you're composing in the moment. 
And sometimes it goes great, and the other times it doesn't. You know, I remember reading uh, Herbie Hancock started his autobiography relating a time when he was playing with Miles Davis, and he hit uh, just, he was tearing through a solo and it was so great. And then he just hit a complete clam. And, you know, Miles Davis is a pretty intimidating guy, and he thought, this is, it's over. And so Miles just kind of looked at him. I gave him this sly look and then played that same note and built this whole thing out of it. Mm. And so I want to get to that kind of place in my preaching and in my leadership. I think that helps in the pastoral pastoral role too is just being a little bit more open to what's going to happen in the moment. So mm. I think that's really important. But then also with the reading emphasis, I know certainly in the troubled times that we live in, there's also there's often moments where the pastoral response is demanded for what's happening in the world. I mean, I think back to January 6th and uh, Roe v. Wade and in the, in the town, um, you know, the Ventraplex where, where we live, uh, the shooting in Allen. Mm-hmm. And so I found in those moments that in the same way I would think about as a conductor, like like uh, the Stravinsky octet for winds or whatever, like you need to play what's on the P, on the page. <laughs> There's some, some interpretive things here, but like Stravinsky is very clear with what he wants you to do. So I found like in those moments for me, I think of certainly those uh, Rover's Wade decision, the shooting in Allen. I found that, and then certainly January 6th, that the manuscript was absolutely 100% the way to go. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't was able to keep my emotions in check, to read what I had written, to carefully consider it, to run it by other people. And then, certainly in the case of January 6th, I had several people come into my office who were just furious with me about what I had said. Mm-hmm. To which I could then take the manuscript out and say, I didn't say that. <laughs> this, this is exactly what I said. So let's talk about, you know, you may have wanted, you may have heard something different, but this is this is what I said. So I think there's moments when playing from the score, for lack of a better term, is actually really helpful in pastoral ministry. Mm. And then as I think too about leadership, I think one of the great trainings I had as a conductor, so I did a master's degree in, in sacred mm-hmm. music at Perkins, the emphasis in choral conducting, is that it's about collaboration and giving every every piece of the puzzle it's due space and place for places for people to shine and i think it really when conducting is practiced well it isn't that uh, just terrible model of leadership that we've somehow bought into of the great woman or a great man who like has all the ideas and all the things and i just don't believe that you know and i think if you look through like the really great leaders in history it's not that way because it and it, when it is, it veers into fascism. So it's not, <laughs> too much power. To, too much, yes, right. to be avoided. Right. I mean, I think of the story of Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel. Like we have this romantic myth that oh, he was up there just for hours and paint dripping into the beard. But no, he had a team of people. Then he taught how to paint in his style, and they did the major work. And he came and did it in the faces and the hands, <laughs> <laughs> and drank his wine. And drank his wine and, like, went on to the next gig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So I think it's, to me, there's great power in giving away power. Like, as a conductor, you don't make a sound. <laughs> as a preacher, you get to make some noise. But but uh, I think that model of leadership, to me, is very appealing and, uh, I think, frankly, critical because the task of ministry in the 21st century is so dang complicated mm-hmm. that nobody has all the answers. And I also think, too, like a big, big believer in Ubuntu, like we're only human through each other, which means we all have pieces of the puzzle here. Amen. So yeah. Giving power away is so key. So as you're talking, I'm, so many thoughts come through my mind, and I'm sure our listeners going to feel that way as well. 
I was thinking about Wynton Marsalis and heard him in concert in Austin probably, oh man, probably 20 years ago. But what struck me in that concert was when he plays, it's as if that trumpet is an ex- simply, it's almost not even there. It's just him talking to us through that instrument, mm-hmm. him relating with us through that instrument, that give and take, that dialogue that happens. Because he would put something out there, and then, of course, the audience would feel a certain way, and he'd put something else out there. But it really just felt like he was verbal. Without words, he was verbalizing something or communicating something. It was so powerful. And I've only had that experience with a few people. But when I think about proclamation and the the fact that music can serve as that unspoken word, but still feels like words are coming at, at us. It's so, so powerful. And I just wondered if you had an experience that that you could share with us about how proclamation and instrumental uh, music wove together to, to get you to another place. Absolutely. And just before that, I love that you, you, you mentioned uh, Winton. Uh, that whole family is anointed. I'm telling you. <laughs> I know. <yeah. laughs> I've had the, the good fortune to see uh, Winton, Ellis, and Branford at different places solo. As in, Branford is my all-time favorite saxophonist, mm-hmm. far mm-hmm. and away. And actually, the last time I heard him was three days before I got my cancer diagnosis. So it was like a marvelous little gift, you know. And then I had a chance to hear them all play together. And yeah, they have such mastery mm-hmm. that it isn't about whatever instrument they're playing. Right. It's mm-hmm. complete expression and connection and beautiful. So I, I uh, am. I couldn't even like put his read on. He's such a better saxophonist than I am. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I will say for me, with the uh, especially uh, the saxophone, I feel like I've had the uh, moments where I was proclaiming, if you will, especially when I improvise solo on different hymn melodies that are somewhat familiar to people. There's just power and beauty in that, and I often do feel the privilege of being a conduit for the Spirit in that moment to proclaim the gospel in that window that is that is hopefully open for people. It's just a marvelous experience, and it's one of those definitely like, you, most of the time you know when it's happening, and I can't explain it, but it's just a molecules in the room kind of feeling, and it's effortless and just chicks and yeah, I would say it's flow, you know, like you get in that moment and it's just... It's there. And then sort of on the other side, I felt like I've received, I guess I would describe them as like emotional experiences of the proclamation of gospel themes, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, most recently, for me, that happened in this past August. And I was very, very fortunate to play with Chuck Bell, who is a mm-hmm. dear friend at Mar- Marsha McPhee's worship planning retreat. It was in Kansas City. And she'd built this beautiful service. And you know how Marsh does. It's like mm-hmm. glorious prepared space. And she'd built it around Achiria's travels, which was super cool. And at the end of the service, there was opportunity for people just to move about the space and to pray. And so Chuck and I just started to improvise in that moment. with, And it was really like, from what I remember, there was no... Like, tune was like okay we're gonna do this in e (laughs) like all right cool and then it's just this back and forth thing but it stretched out to over 30 minutes wow this is just no no words extended thing that was happening between the piano and the saxophone and by the end of that time most of the people had left but there were people that were dancing freely to the music in this beautiful space and moving in time with it. And that as I was reflecting on it later, I was like, there was this gospel themes of 
community, something mm. that we were doing together, but in a way that didn't need words. And liberation, just to see where it goes and to be free to follow it and joy and things that I've really learned in the last six months that I have experienced in music and I'm trying to transpose that into the rest of my life mm-hmm. is what it means to be really present mm-hmm. in the moment and just to be right there. I think mm-hmm. things I love about music is that when you're in it, you're in it, right? It's nothing else Nothing else going on. This is what what you're doing. And so I'm trying to do that more in my regular life. But it was just a really sacred and holy moment. And that whole half an hour, 45 minutes, I don't know how long it was. But it was just, there were no words needed. And yet the spirit was present in all of it. Mm-hmm. My first reaction is, is there a recording? That's that sort of takes it <laughs> out of that context. It, yeah. You can't you can't reproduce that. You have to yeah, it's ephemeral say, art, be right? in the yeah. moment. Yeah, that's art. Mm-hmm. And it's ephemeral. It's here and then it's gone, except in our memories, it's there. Yeah. Um yeah. and that, that makes it even extra special, I think. I think yeah. so too. I I I hope that uh, in the end of all this, that'll be some of the things that I'll most remember of like what a gift it was to do that and to yeah. Have those moments with people. Mm. Holy ground. Yes. You know, Joe, one of the things that I just hear as a thread throughout this conversation is, I mean, you brought up vulnerability at the very beginning and your interest in really exploring what it means to live vulnerably, to draw vulnerability out in a congregation, to lead with vulnerability. And I'm just so struck by how vulnerable it must be to be you and your instrument and one other person and their instrument. And you're just trusting one another and you're trusting the spirit in the midst of that. But I'm also struck by how much preparation is required (laughs) to be vulnerable. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's, I think it's a tension, and maybe this is just a personal me thing, but it's a thing that I feel like I encounter over and over in my life as a musician and in so many other areas, which is that preparation and practice are necessary to be vulnerable and bring our best. Oh, yeah. And when so many things about the music world and beyond can really be focused on, well, if you're really good at this, you can just do it. You don't, you know, what's, what, why would you need practice? You know, the gospel's the gospel. So just go preach it or, you know, a hymn's a hymn, just sit down and play it or, or whatever that is. And yet to really take it from something that we're just kind of doing, not at our best to something where we're fully vulnerable and in it. I just hear like, what a gift preparation and practice is and putting in the time. Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, the 10,000 hours thing, I'm trying to remember. Do y'all know the name of the, the author who coded that? But, I think uh, it's Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. That's right. He's got this great <laughs> podcast too. I think that's like just the beginning. That's just entrance into the game. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, that's where it starts. And I, you know, I think a, an organist, you know, he's like, you're a fabulous organist. I think that's such a great for people who have had the experience of being with a living, breathing pipe organ, an organist who knows what they're doing, who registers each of the stanzas differently and is able to bring color to the key themes of the of the text is such a different thing than like, yeah, 
hymns can be really boring. I think that as a musician, I've seen boring in in uh, in every style. So yeah, <laughs> minimal snobbery about it. I've seen, I, and, I, and I've met modern worship guitar players who are who are much more snobby about tone than mm-hmm. some of the best organists I own. I know, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's that's it's the details and the prep work and the knowing of the history from which this thing comes. Mm-hmm. I think this is one of the things I appreciate most about jazz is that whether you're rebelling or serving as an iconoclast to what came before you, you know what came before you. Mm-hmm. And you can do what came before you. Mm-hmm. And that's when you earn the opportunity to venture outside of those walls with integrity. And I, I yeah, I think that's just the practice piece cannot be overrated. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like I I, I I come across this attitude sometimes too. It's like that's not true for anything, anything that has discipline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you don't just show up and hit a golf ball and you're like Tiger Woods. It just doesn't <laughs> doesn't work that way. You know? Right. <laughs> like right. Music, preaching. Oh my gosh. Wow. If you don't have deeply considered what you're going to say, you can cause real harm mm-hmm. and deep damage. And mm-hmm. so Nadia Bowles Weber says, uh, one of the reasons she stays in is because religion is too dangerous to be left to its own devices. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. No. I love that. How no Doing enough that we can venture outside the walls with integrity. I think that's beautiful. So, well, Joe, I... What a rich conversation. Thank you mm-hmm. so much for taking mm-hmm. your time and your your energy and uh, just carving out this space with us. We so appreciate it. And for all of you listening, we hope that this has been a helpful and enriching conversation for you as well. Remember that you can find more information at our website at umcdiscipleship.org. We want you to tell us what you think, so send us an email. And until next time, we will be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you make disciples for the transformation of the world. This podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.